morning. <clears throat> the reading this morning comes from uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Well, hi and welcome to you. My name is Brian Harris, service pastor at large here, and very good that you're here today. Good to hear the rain, isn't it? Kind of not quite what you expect on the 1st of November, but uh, we'll take what we get. And today we're starting a new series. It's a series that looks at the church's vision statement. Now, now you may think, oh my goodness, a sermon series on the church's vision statement. Uh, that's not necessarily what we want. We want good biblical stuff. Um, but actually, I, I think especially out of this COVID period, we do ask ourselves this question, so, so why do we gather as a church? What is it that we're on about? Uh, is it actually worth it? As some of you might have during the, 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 the shutdown period of COVID, maybe you actually got to quite like the routine of kind of just watching church online. And uh, maybe every now and then you kind of, uh, if I was getting a tad dull or someone else was getting a tad dull, maybe you just went and made yourself a coffee or something like that and it still looked like you were online, so that was nice. And maybe you think, oh, if only that could be the regular and that, that could be the permanent. So, so it's worth asking this, this question. So what are we on about? What, what's our vision? Why do we meet as a church? And, and at Kerry, we, we do have a vision. A, a vision is about kind of what you see happening as a result of us being together. So, so for church to have vision says, well, if we're going to gather, what, what do we think will happen as a result of it? And our vision statement says simply that, that, that we see that we will be to be flourishing communities of hope, to be flourishing communities of hope, transformed by God's love, following Jesus and serving in God's world. To be flourishing communities of hope, transformed by God's love, following Jesus and serving in God's world. And, and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at that, that first part, to be flourishing communities of hope. And, and listen, I drew the short straw. So someone had to speak on to be. So this is a sermon on two words, to be, uh, to be or not to be. That is the question or, or, or whatever. 
But actually, I think that it's a little bit more significant. And, and actually, if you think about that question of being, it is really quite an important one, isn't it? So, so if I think back to my childhood, granted a fair while back now, uh, the, the, the question which would get asked over and over again is, so what are you going to be? What are you going to be? And I, and I imagine that you got asked that, that question quite often as well. And, and, and like in my early years, I was fairly predictable. I had this lovely little policeman set with a policeman hat and a truncheon and handcuffs and all kinds of things. And my answer when people said, what are you going to be? I was going to be a policeman. Oh my goodness, the law and disorder that would continue if that had ever happened. But at any rate, not a, not, not a dream that ever materialized. And then, you know, because I love my parents very much, and both my parents were pharmacists, uh, a little later on, I moved to the second of those Ps. I moved from being a policeman to being a pharmacist. And actually, in my university days, I did serve at, the, at a chemist. I mean, I wasn't the pharmacist, obviously, but I got to know how to ask people, you know, do you have a dry cough or a productive cough? And I kind of learned kind of which kind of medication they should take for, for that. Um, but nevertheless, I never really did want to be a pharmacist. Uh, and a little later on, it, it, it became to be a pastor, and I guess that, that, that did actually happen. But at some point, you realize that the to be question, I mean, you, you start your career, and you get into it, and you do it. And nevertheless, you realize that at some point, life keeps asking you that question, what are you going to be? And it's not just about what are you going to do, but what are you going to actually be? And, and then as you go through different stages of life, you start to realize, so what am I going to be in my teenage years? What am I going to be in my 20s? What am I going to be in my 30s? What am I going to be in my 40s? What am I going to be in my 50s? I've got to the stage, now, what am I going to be in my 60s? Some of you, what am I going to be in my 70s or my 80s? Because, because actually life asks you new questions at different periods of life. Who are we going to be? Now, now, for us as a church, we say that we are going to be flourishing communities of hope, transformed by God's love, following Jesus and serving in God's world, to be. I, I think if I were to ask, be asked the question, so what do I want to be? I think at the very deepest level, I would say, I simply want to be a follower of Jesus. I simply want to be a follower of Jesus. And, and being a follower of Jesus means that there are many seasons that you go through in life and many different things that, 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 that happen. I, I find one of the most haunting questions in, or invitations in the Bible is Jesus' invitation. It's, it's Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 4. It's Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, Jesus has been baptized. Jesus has spent some time in the wilderness. Jesus has just started his preaching. And then he realizes, I need some people to be with me. And he goes and he sees Andrew and he sees Peter and he says, come follow me. Come follow me. It's an extraordinary invitation. Now, now, if you were Jewish and if you were there at that time, you would have thought, okay, so, 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 so imagine, always when you read the Bible, by the way, imagine that you were there. Imagine you were this person. Imagine you were Andrew. Imagine you were Peter. So, so, so there you are. You've been fishing for a good numbers of, of years. You've answered the question, what am I going to be? I'm going to be a fisherman. And then comes this day, this, this traveling preacher comes to you and says, come, follow me. And, and you'd have to answer the question, why on earth would I do that? I mean, why would I do that? Now, now, now the question's probably set against this background. So who is Jesus? And who would they have thought that Jesus, is, Jesus was? At this point of time, they would have thought Jesus was a teacher or a rabbi. 
And, and it was perfectly normal for a rabbi to have disciples follow them. And, and in fact, that's often how, how many rabbis were supported. They would have a group of disciples who would, who would follow them, who would tend to their needs, and in, in return, those, ra- those disciples would be taught by the rabbi. What, what is a little unusual about what's going on here is that usually, if you were someone who wanted to go deeper into your Jewish faith, you would look and, and, and you kind of do a little search of the rabbis, and you would ask different people, so who's a good rabbi, who's a, who's a promising rabbi? And then you would go and you would say, Rabbi, whoever, can I follow you? Can I be your disciple? Can I watch you? And, 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 and if the rabbi said yes, then, then usually you'd be signing on for about a three-year period. And in that three-year period, you'd follow your rabbi around and you'd learn from your rabbi and, and you'd just stay close to them. And, and the idea was, you know, it's one thing to listen to someone teach. It's another thing to actually watch them live. And, and, and so, so, so the model that Jesus actually has is not that unusual for the Jewish world, where there were a group of people following around. What, what is unusual is that, that, that actually uh, disciples asked rabbis if they could follow them. Jesus actually takes the initiative and goes to these people and says, will you follow me? Come, follow me. And I suppose that you could look at it that, that, at that point and you could say, so, so at this stage, I mean, this may sound strange, but at this stage, it seems like Jesus is almost a wannabe rabbi, like a rabbi without disciples. Like no one's actually going to him saying, can I follow you? So he goes the other way around and says, you know, you come and follow me. It was truly quite extraordinary. And so if you say, so why did they respond and why did they say yes to following Jesus? I think that you would say they there must have been something quite charismatic and remarkable about him. Something that, that, that was quite out of the ordinary about Jesus, that these people would follow him. And, and initially they, they followed as, okay, so he's, a, he's an unestablished rabbi, but we see promise in him, and we're taking a risk, and we're going to follow him. I mean, we're not very likely candidates. I mean, that's the other thing that's quite surprising here. I mean, usually, if a rabbi accepted a disciple, it was because that person showed exceptional talent, because they were really very promising. But, I mean, who were these fishermen? I mean, you wouldn't go up to a group of fishermen and say, come and follow me. They, I mean, they, 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 they would just be a little bit too ordinary. So, so, so they get the invitation from this wannabe rabbi. He's fairly charismatic, so they, they decide to follow him. Why do they stay? Why do they stay? I think the answer is because they see such extraordinary things. I mean, they're miracles, so that's pretty compelling in the first place. But at the end of the day, rabbis are not primarily about do miracles. Rabbis are about teaching and about saying, this is how we should live. And think about the truly remarkable things that Jesus taught. I mean, here's a woman. She's a a woman at well. She's been married multiple times. Jesus gets into a conversation with her. Uh, She's got kind of Samaritan leanings. And she asks this question. So where should we worship God? I mean, I've been taught that you've got to worship God in that mountain over there. And you Jews, you believe that it's got to be in Jerusalem. Where should you worship God? And Jesus says, actually, a day is coming when true believers will worship in spirit and in truth. Oh my, that's quite a different way of thinking of things. If all your life you thought that the most important thing is the temple, and here this upstart rabbi is saying it's actually about worshiping God and spirit and in truth, that is actually different. All Sabbath. I mean, if you were Jewish, oh my goodness, everything revolved around the Sabbath day and what you could and couldn't do in the Sabbath day. And then this upper star teacher comes and says, actually, you know what? The Sabbath 
was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. You get everything completely muddled. You think somehow it's about worshiping the Sabbath day. Don't you realize Sabbath is God's good gift to you? And you think, oh my goodness, that's a little bit different. And then you get told that the first will be last, and the last will be first, and you think, that's upside down. And you get told, if you, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. And if you're willing to lose your life, you will find it. That's different. And then you get told the parable of the good Samaritan. I mean, if you're a Jewish, that's a contradiction in terms. There were no good Samaritans. I mean, Samaritans were the enemy. How can you possibly have a good Samaritan? Thank you very much. Except that in this story, Jesus says maybe the enemy can be good. Maybe sometimes the enemy is even better than you are. That's different. And, and you get, get told the story of the prodigal son, where the son who is the most insensitive and the most awful is the one that is specially loved by God. And you think, wow, this teacher sees things quite differently. And then he dies, crucified, an excruciating death. And then he's resurrected. And my, you are following Jesus. To be, what do you want to be? I want to be a follower of Jesus. I, I want to be caught by his teaching. I, I want to kind of pull myself up short every now and then and say, so am I being shaped by that teaching? I mean, do I sometimes imagine that the Samaritan might be good, that my imagined enemies might be good? Do I sometimes have a heart that the first might be last and the last might be first, and so I, so do I especially look out for those who lost? Do I kind of think about the prodigal son and think, okay, so those really difficult ones might be the ones specially loved by God? Because that's what Jesus is teaching me to do. And, and if I'm following Jesus, those are the surprises that I get. And actually worshiping God is about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, which means that actually I have no excuses because it is not about place. It is not about place. And I don't have to wait for Sunday morning to worship God. Actually, tomorrow and the next day and the next day, I can find that I truly am worshiping God. What do you want to be and what should we be? We, we, we should be this community who are shaped by the story of Jesus. And imagine if we, we all together, I mean, there, there, there's several hundred of us here today. Imagine if all together we are following Jesus and, and kind of really thinking about these stories that he's told us and thinking about how these stories challenge our lives. And, and, and remember that, that they're not just nice stories for other people. They, they're stories for us. And, and, and when we read scripture, I mean, the, the most remarkable thing is when, when we realize that the book that we're reading is the book that comes around and reads us. And, and that really when you read the Bible at some point, you kind of look down and here's the Bible and get, it floats up and you realize it is reading me. And it is saying, so are you living in the light of that? Are you doing that? That's what it means to be someone who's not exactly the same day after day. But, but you're on a journey and on this journey of following Jesus. What do we want to be? We, we want to be followers of Jesus. I think though that we we need to recognize that, that to be followers of Jesus, we, we do that as a community. And we need to be shaped by our community. We need to be shaped by our community, our community of followers of Jesus. Now, now what do I mean by that? Um, if you hear the word church, is your response, is, is your response kind of instinctively a really positive one? 
or is it a negative one, or what do you think? I mean, for many people, when they hear the word church nowadays, they just think negative thoughts, you know, oh, the church did this, that, or the other thing, and it, it really gets, gets quite negative. And we need to think through this family that we are part of. Any of you done the Ancestor.com? Who's done Ancestor.com? Anyone? Like, a, a few of you have. No, no, I don't know why you did it. I, actually, I haven't done it, so I don't really know what it's done. But, but I'm thinking that maybe I'll do it one day, because who knows? Maybe there's royalty in my line somewhere. I mean, that's, that's the best reason to look for something like that. I'm actually a king of Norway or whatever. Uh, and, oh, that would be wonderful, just wonderful. But anyway, um, when you look back in your family tree, you are likely to find things that are wonderful and you're likely to find things that are challenging. And, and, and if you know something about your family, I imagine that your family has some wonderful brag stories, you know, your family at its best. And I imagine that your family has some shame stories, the one that you, 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 you try not to actually get to. You, you, you probably also have some fairly practical stories. So it could be that in your family, um, maybe, maybe there's something like... Uh, bowel cancer or something has gone through your family and so you need to get checked up on that quite regularly. So, so those can just be some quite practical things that come from knowing something of your family history. So we want to be, we want to be flourishing communities of hope, but, but we're part of this family, which is the church. It's a, it's, it's a family that, that has a 2,000 year history. That's a lot of history. And it's a family that, that, that there's been in many parts of the world, and it's a family with over 2 billion members today. So, so that's actually quite a big family. It's, it's, it's kind of tough for Christmas, isn't it? Uh, so this is an enormous family, and it has some extraordinarily wonderful stories. I, I, I've said here before that, that for the early Christians, when they got going, remember how tough it was for them? Do, do, do you remember the, the slander that they had to work with? I've, I've said, said, said before that if you wanted to summarize the obstacle that the early church, church faced, it was that they were considered to be traitorous, kinky cannibals. Uh, traitorous, why? Because they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. Kinky, why? Because they greeted one another with a holy kiss, and the Roman Empire didn't know how to, how to deal with that, and they thought that that was seriously weird. Uh, they were considered to be cannibals because when they met together, they ate the body of Jesus and they drank the blood of Jesus in their communion. And so in a Twitter-style age, you know, in a kind of ancient world version, those three little accusations went out. These are traitorous, kinky cannibals. You know, these people, you don't want anything to do with them. These people are seriously dodgy. And yet when we remember that, so, so our ancestors faced that accusation and went on to change the world. How did they do that? I mean, given that, that there was all that bad press against them, how did they do that? And, and there's a very simple, it's, it's a two-word answer. Courage, kindness. Courage, kindness. Courage, kindness. They changed the world because they were courageous and they kept following Jesus even in the face of death. And they were remarkably kind. And no, no, this was a world in which kindness was not routinely practiced. I mean, if you go to the ancient Greek, Greek, Greek Roman world, um, people sometimes say that they practice infanticide. That's not entirely true. In other words, they, they, they killed babies after birth. That, that's not entirely true. But they did, for example, practice what they called exposure to the elements. So if you had a child and you thought your child was a little weakly and you didn't want to be bothered by a child who wasn't going to be tough, it was perfectly legitimate just to leave your child out in the open. And uh, the idea was that that was quite moral because you're giving it a chance. If it survived, it survived, and that, that, that was great. 
um, the ancient Roman world had a very low view of women, and many, many families would, in fact, with, with female babies, would, would, would practice exposure to the elements because, uh, you know, if you had a woman, you had to have a, a girl, you had to have a dowry for her one day. She was just considered less valuable. Now, I'm sorry to have to say that, but that's just the way in which, which the world viewed itself. And so the ancient world would quite often, kind of people would have their babies see a girl, just exposed her to the elements. And literally thousands of babies would die because of exposure like that. Now, now the early Christians, uh, traitorous, kinky cannibals, though they were, so far as everyone was concerned, would quite often just stumble upon one of these children who had been left out, abandoned, and they would take the child and they would take them to their home and they would raise them. And a watching world thought, oh, that's quite nice that you do that. Why would you do that? Why would you put yourself out like that? It's not even your child and it's not a child that's going to be viewed as valuable. Why are you doing that? And if they asked the question, the early Christians would say, because everyone matters to God. Because, that, you see, they had this deep conviction that every single human being had been made in the image of God, and therefore everyone was valuable. Now, that was not how the ancient Roman view, world viewed, viewed people. They believed that some people were far more important than others. They, they viewed that some, some people were far more talented than others. They believed that privilege was right. They believed that, that, in fact, we should look after the most talented. And the early church just kind of got about its business. And in this atmosphere of deep distrust, showing kindness, like, for example, when, when babies were exposed to the elements, Christians would ever so often just take them into their home and look after them and raise them as though they were their own. They, they practiced what has come to be called caritas. Now, now in the ancient, caritas or charity. Now, now, in the ancient world, charity was almost unknown. If you were fortunate enough to have something to give away, so, so, so let's imagine, here you're a person, you've managed to get a few extra pennies that you put aside, uh, and, and you think, okay, so I don't need everything that I've got, what will I do with it? If you followed the wisdom of the, of the ancient world, what you'd do with those extra pennies is you wouldn't say, well, can I find a poor person who needs something? Could I help them? You wouldn't do that. You'd say, can I find a rich person to give this to? Because if I give these extra pennies to a rich person, they have influence and perhaps they will open a door for me. Perhaps it will be for my good. So any excess that people had, you'd kind of look around and you'd say, who might do me a favor if I give them something? Now, now the early Christians did it quite the other way around. They say, said, we have this excess. Who actually needs it? Who's struggling to feed their family? Who's struggling to get by? Why don't we give it to them? They'll never be able to repay it. But that's what kindness actually means. And a watching world who said, you know, traitorous, kinky cannibals, nevertheless also said, but kind and courageous, they, they don't deny Jesus even in the face of death. I mean, do, do you see this remarkable tradition which we have? So, so when we say this is your family, it's like saying this is ancestor.com. You've just gone back there. These are our people. This is how we started. It's a remarkable, remarkable story. However, let me say, because every family has to face up to its shadow side, 
there has also been a shadow side. So why is it that some people, when they say the word church, almost spit it out? Well, sometimes we get muddled, and sometimes we forget our deepest identity, and sometimes we are too successful. And the history of our family, our family, the church, shows that when we get too powerful, we do not use that well. When we get too powerful, we do not use that well. And the church in power has often done some, some very terrible things. So, sometimes the church has just not dug deeply enough into the teaching of Jesus. Let, let, let me give you one example. It's one of the strangest examples in church history. It's the 1100s. St. Bernard of Claveau is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Christian leader. He's gone into the Benedictine monasteries. He's helped to revive them. He, he's, he's overcome with, with the sense of Jesus died for us. And he writes one of the most beautiful hymns that have ever been written, O Sacred Head, So Wounded. Have, have, do, do some of you know, know, know the hymn, O Sacred Head, So Wounded? Let's, let's just see all the kind of an older generation who remember it. Great. So, so, some of you put it. Listen. For you youngsters out there who might never have heard the words from O Sacred Head Saw Wounded, let, let me just read some of them to you. They were written during the 1100s by St. Bernard. So, so this is a hymn that now goes back almost 900 years. O Sacred Head Saw Wounded, Defiled and Put to Scorn. O Kingly Head Surrounded with Mocking Crown of Thorn. What sorrow mars thy grandeur? Can death thy bloom deflower? O countenance whose splendor the hosts of heaven adore. Thy beauty long desired hath vanished from our sight. Thy power is all expired and quenched the light of light. Ah, me, for whom thou diest, hide not so far thy grace. Show me, O love most highest, the brightness of thy face. Beautiful words, aren't they? I mean, you, you feel like you, you're standing at the cross of Jesus. And, and here's this man, and he's writing these words, and it's, it's in the 1100s. The first crusade has taken place. It has not been particularly successful. There is very little appetite for a second crusade because the first one's been so disastrous. And it looks as though the whole concept of going on crusades and forcing Turks to become Christians at the point of the sword, which was always a bizarre concept, it looks as though it's just going to quietly disappear. And then, and then, and then, St. Bernard, in a day in which the people said he preached the sermon of his life, preaches to a whole field of peasants, but not just peasants, the king of France is there. And he preaches about the wonder of the cross, and he talks about how important it is to claim back the holy land. And suddenly the second crusade, which was never going to happen, happens, and one of the most shameful eras of all of the Christian church takes place. As a second crusade is followed by a third, is followed by a fourth. And as you go, you actually realize that as those crusaders went into the, 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 the Middle East and tried to win over those lands, they basically said to, 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 to the Turks who were there, you know, be converted or we will kill you. I mean, what kind of a choice is that? And, and the devastation from that period, we still feel today, we still feel today, 900 years later, people will still say, I will never be a Christian because look at what the Christian faith did. Think about the Crusades, think about the bloodshed, all that in the name of Christ. It's a tough family history, isn't it? I mean, it's a glorious family history. Sometimes it's a misguided family history. 
And, and if we are going to be part of the family of God and build, build flourishing communities of faith, we have to ask this question, when is our family at its best and when is our family at its worst? Just as, as you need to know for your own family. So if there are some alcoholics, or if, you, if you have a history of many people who have drinking problems in, in your family, you need to know actually this family needs to avoid alcohol or, or whatever it might be. I mean, you, you have to face your family history. Now, now, this is what we have to face as the Christian church. Whenever we have power, we use it badly. Whenever we have power, we use it badly. Why? Because the power should be God's, not ours. That whenever we are incarnated, and whenever we simply get involved in our communities, and whenever we just love and serve, we are at our very best. We are at our very best. And whenever we have detached power that can make proclamations of how society should be, we do that terribly, and we abuse that power. But, in a, but whenever we are just involved, dive in, meet with ordinary people, get incarnated, and love our communities, we do astonishing good. Which is why I think the Kerry vision is so compelling. It is about a community that says, we're gonna turn the church inside out. We're gonna dive into our communities. We're gonna start schools. We're gonna have cafes. We're gonna just be involved with people and, and we're gonna listen to people's stories and we're gonna be there as God people and we, we see that we can be. We want to be flourishing communities of hope. We want to be that. We can be that. And, and, and we're going to be shaped as our, our story is going to be the story of Jesus. Or, or, or we're going to remember when Jesus gets asked, it's, it's in Mark's gospel, someone comes to Jesus and says, so what's the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus say? Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now we are remarkable communities when we listen to the creed of Jesus. And the creed of Jesus is to love God with everything that we've got and to love our neighbors as ourselves and to be shaped by that. <clears throat> Time is going. Let me move on quickly. I've said, what should we be? What does it mean to be in, the, in, in our community? Um, we should be followers of Jesus. We should be shaped by the family that we're part of, and we should call our family to be its best version of itself. We should be watching for the signs of the Spirit the whole time. People who are alert to God at work in our communities. Many of you know that our service principal of Vos Seminary actually finished up at the end of this, this year. I uh, had a farewell at the Baptist Union Assembly just a week ago and was given a gift. It's a lovely sculpture that is based on Moses' encounter at the burning bush, based from Exodus chapter 3. It's, it's a very beautiful piece, and I was quite blown away at the kindness of, of people to have, have, have done that for me. And I was also very blown away because it just so happens that Exodus chapter 3 is one of my favorite chapters. I don't know if you know Exodus chapter 3 very well, but here it is, Moses. He has been in the wilderness now for 40 years. Uh, as a young man, he had had very high hopes. Uh, he had thought that he would be a powerful, influential leader, and it had all gone to nothing. And for 40 years now, he's been tending sheep in the wilderness. And as he's out wandering one day, in territory where he had walked many, 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 many times before, he suddenly sees that there is a bush, and the bush is on fire. But what seems to be so remarkable is that this bush which is on fire does not burn up. And he goes a little closer, and as he gets a little closer, he, he hears this voice saying, take off your sandals, 
The ground that you're walking on is holy ground. It is holy ground. God is here. And, and Moses must have thought, I have walked this, this ground a thousand times before. How did it suddenly become holy? And the answer is, it's always been holy. But suddenly you can see that God is here. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to spot that there are burning bushes everywhere. It means to spot that in your daily routine, God is there. And, and, and that as, you, as you're about to march on by, that every now and then you will sense that God is saying to you, stop, take off your sandals. I mean, God is here. This is a holy place and a holy space. And as you follow me, just figure out what it is that I'm trying to do. Bump into the spirit and all that you're actually doing. I mean, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we in fact see that God is there and is not just involved in holy days, but in every day, for every day is holy when we follow God. It means that on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday, you might well bump into a burning bush, and you know the burning bush might be just at that moment when you're going to go into that most difficult of meetings, and you realize that somehow God is doing something. So, you may be saying, okay, so, we carry, we have this vision, we want to be flourishing communities of hope. And yet, in my life, I would love to be a follower of Jesus, and I would love to be my family at its best, and I would love to spot burning bushes in unexpected places. And when that happens to me, count me in. And, and we might almost have a fairly passive attitude towards that. If, if you were to say, say to me, what is the one thing that I've noticed about COVID and what I think COVID has done for, for people? is that I think that it has moved many people from being actors to being passive and to just waiting. And, and it's almost as though we're too afraid to get in and to do things because we're unsure of what lies ahead. And so many people I've noticed who in the past have been very hard, hard producers are suddenly kind of just drifting with a sense of, well, when the motivation fairy strikes, I'll get going again. Uh, and, and, and maybe you're listening even to this, this message today, and you're thinking, well, you know, if God wants to zap me, if God wants to really convict me that I must be a follower, if God wants to make me think that I must think about how a family can be its best version of itself, God wants to meet me in a burning bush, fine, cut me in, but, uh, you know, when that happens, that, 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 that happens. I, I want to suggest that there is no motivation fairy out there, but that it actually comes when we make a decision. You know, Jesus is called, Jesus has said, come follow me. No, it's an active thing. So come and follow. Actively participate in the story. A silly, silly account, but maybe it makes the point. I, I go to the gym. No, I, I accept that you might not believe that, but it is actually the truth. Um, so I go to the gym. I, I, I try to get to the gym three times a week. I hate going to the gym, you know, where I go. And every, every single time that I go there, it is an extraordinary act of will because I think... What lies ahead is agony, breathlessness, and complete humiliation. I mean, that, it happens every time. I mean, there, there, there you go there, you go to these weight machines, and I think, okay, I'll give that a bash, and then I look, and some idiot has set it at 100 kilograms, and I kind of think, 100 kilograms, and I kind of try when no one's looking to kind of lift it up to 20 kilograms or something like that, and, 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 you, you, and, and you go ahead, and you, you go through the gym, and I, and I always think, this is just awkward. This is... It's going to just be this horrible hour that lies ahead. But here's the thing. 
I go in feeling, ugh, the gym, I better go. This is my duty. And I leave thinking, I'm amazing. I'm incredible. I'm so buff. I'm so tough. I mean, I'm this extraordinary person who has gone through this discipline. And, and you know, as, as all those whatever it is that flows through your body when, when you do exercises start to kick in, you, you feel so much better. Following Jesus is a little bit like that. If you wait on the sidelines saying, well, when the day comes when magically I'm thrown into the field, then I'll enjoy it. It's not going to happen. You've got to, in fact, take the step and say, actually, I am going to be a follower of Jesus. That's what I've been called to do. That's what I want to be. And so as I finished, let me just ask you this question. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Do you want to shape our family life together to help us to be our best version of ourselves? Do you want to spot some burning bushes? Listen to the words of Jesus. He's saying to you even now, come, follow me. Dive in. Dive in. Dive in. Let's pray. Lord, for those who are just sitting on the sidelines, wondering whether there will ever be a role for them, just pray that you would give them the confidence to answer your call. For those who, who've answered but just don't feel very clear of what it means, Lord, help us to ponder your stories more deeply. Show us what they mean in our context and give us the courage to obey. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've called us to be flourishing communities of hope, hope to a world that desperately needs it. Take our lives. Use them for your glory. Amen.